This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach, it's Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We have a busy hour coming your way, including Larry Kudlow. He's a superstar of Fox Business, along with Stuart Varney. I mean, uh, so talented, so effective with President Trump, uh, did so great with the economy. And Larry Kudlow will be on. And one of the things he'll be talking about uh, before we get to the big three is news that just came across now that uh, Donald Trump will not be on Facebook. It looks as though they have upheld the ban on Donald Trump. How insulting it is. Now, he never asked to be reinstated. In fact, as far as I know, uh, this is going to just reinforce the push to break up big tech. Uh, he launched a new media platform yesterday. Almost it sounds like he was expecting it. Um, so we'll see where this goes. How can you take a former president and take him off social media? And now it looks like it's going to be upheld. Twitter, they banned him for life. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is a role for governments outside of the region and international institutions. I've also spoken with world leaders from Canada, Finland, Ireland, Japan, about partnering with us to help the Northern Triangle. Uh, that is Kamala Harris. Man, uh, can you believe her? What will it take to get the VP to engage in a border as a border czar? She seems to think a meeting with Finland and blaming climate change gets it done. Not me. Number two. I think she's got real problems. I, 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 I've had it with I've had it with her. It's, you know, I, I've lost confidence. All things GOP. It should be happy times that they're beginning to win on some major issues. And taking of the House should be 18 months away. But simmering underneath a Liz Cheney Republican leadership fracturing that could cost her the number three slot and maybe the Republicans a major win in 2022. Number one. American Federation of Teachers, the country's largest, second largest teachers union, influenced the CDC's guidelines on reopening schools. Well, I would say first that's false. The CDC, it's actually longstanding best practice uh, for the CDC to engage with organizations and groups that are going to be impacted by guidance. Uh, that is uh, Jen Psaki not telling the truth, trying and failing to explain. That's what Jen Psaki is trying to do now. And email exchanges between the CDC and teachers union show the AFT has corrupted the science. Plus, we are winning the fight against COVID despite what Dr. Fauci says. And the Biden contradictory mass behavior continues to befuddle the country and hurt the vaccine effort. Just real quick on, on the upholding of Facebook and upholding the ban. You know, the president not being on there has not hurt Facebook. Their numbers continue to rise. But here's what the oversight board has said. The board has upheld Facebook's decision on January 7th to suspend then-President Trump from Facebook and Instagram. Trump's po- uh, post during the Capitol riot severely violated Facebook's rules and encouraged the legitimized um, violence. I don't know what that means. First thing I saw posted during the riots were for everyone to calm down. 
The, uh, the board also found Facebook violated its own rules by imposing a suspension that was indefinite. This penalty is not described in Facebook content policies. It has no clear criteria and gives Facebook total discretion on what it has opposed. So you can't have a permanent ban. We'll see what happens. Within six months of today, Facebook must review the matter and decide a new penalty that reflects its rules, the severity of the violation, and prospect of future harm. Facebook can either impose a time-limited suspension or account deletion. Facebook cannot make up rules as it goes, said the Oversight Board, and anyone concerned about its power should be concerned about allowing this. Having clear rules that apply to all Facebook users is essential for ensuring the company treats everyone fairly. So Trump is still out, which is good news for Democrats, and maybe to a degree uh, the president. He keeps people out. His numbers are exactly the same at 45%. And right now on television, Mark Meadows is talking. We'll pull some of that. So we, uh, we do have a lot to discuss, regardless of what Facebook decided. And to tell you the truth, it does not surprise me. Twitter and Facebook are on the same page, even though they're competitors. Twitter has a lifetime ban, and I don't see them reversing it. That would have put a lot of pressure on Twitter. And I, don't, I think they like not having the president on their platform, to be only honest, because there are a bunch of liberals out there on the West Coast anyway. So let's talk about what's happening with, with the CDC as well as with the teachers' union. How maddening, and I talked to an 8th grader, a ninth grader, and a 5th grader today on television just about what it is like, two of which are out in California, one in Philadelphia. What is it like learning? And she says, it's terrible. She goes, I'm, I'm at home all day. The ninth grader says, I just have no interaction. I'm barely getting by. Now, the young girl, the 8th grader, said, I'm passing. My two brothers are at home, and they are both failing. And what is maddening is... You don't blame China for this part of it. They gave us the pandemic, but we have since got the vaccine, and you have state after state after state back in full-time school like Florida, like South Dakota, uh, like South Carolina, like Texas, back to school full-time, and these kids are being tortured. Then you find out the American Federation's uh, union— uh, teachers Union, was emailing with the CDC, making sure they didn't put out proclamations and declarations that made them go back to school. Some of the things that they put in their emails, the CDC put verbatim. I thought we were supposed to follow the science. Where's the science with the unions telling the CDC what to write? Here's an example. The AFT email to CDC on February 11th, quote, it would be great to see you insert some variation of the following. In the events of high community transgression results from a new variant of SARS-CoV-2, a new, new, new update of these guidelines may be necessary. So he goes on to say, uh, Americans for Public Trust, which is uh, the name of the group that asked for these emails, said employers should provide reassignment rework or other opinions to staff or other options for staff who have documented high-risk conditions who are at increased risk for severe illnesses. Now, the actual CDC guidelines, at all levels of community transmission, employers should provide reassignment work or other options for teachers and staff who have documented high-risk conditions. They took the exact lines from the teachers' union and put it in the scientific report. For every—and Jason Riley had this down—for every parent, Democrat or Republican— you have to understand one thing. Republicans are right on this issue. Not only get back to school, but they want to give kids school choice because the private schools, the charter schools, the Catholic schools, for the most part, are back at school. When you have no choice and you're at the, the, you're at the whim of the school boards, you have to stay in the public school. But if Republicans had their way, especially in the inner cities, these kids would take the money dedicated to their education and be able to take it with them to another school, to another university. And that's what should be the focus. Republicans don't make up this issue. 
you have this issue. You're not the ones who got $40 million from the teachers unions and now have to acquiesce to their whims. Joe Biden does. Here's Bill Bennett, cut two. Now, the real shame here uh, is not their advocacy, though I wish they were more for children uh, and uh, the education of children than for the financial interest of their members. But that's to be expected of them. The real shame here is the CDC, which is supposed to be about science and evidence, bowing to this request to the AFT uh, and putting their language uh, in the guidelines. That's the corruption of science. That is a real scandal in government. Uh, No question. Real scandal in government. Giving in, the CDC director spoke out and said that no reason for kids back to be back in schools. Jen Psaki said she only speaks to herself. Really? I thought she had the title. So is Jen Psaki just speaking for Jen Psaki? On February the first week in February, they said that. They said it again on February 14th. But the kids are still not back in school. And the teachers are vaccinated. And the FDC, the CDC said the teachers did not have to be vaccinated. Why am I so angry about this? Because you're never going to get 8th grade back. You're never going to get 1st grade back. You're never going to get 11th grade back. You're never going to have your senior year back. And if it happens because of a war or a plague like we're in the middle of, I get it. But this was all unnecessary. Now we have the vaccine. Teachers got to be back. They want to get vaccinated first. Teachers got you built. The schools got huge checks flowing into the system. They know it's coming. Instead of six feet, it's three feet. You got plexiglass coming in fully financed from the poorest school to the richest school. And they're still not back in school. That's what's crazy. A third are not back in full-time school. That's of this country, uh, in this country. And we are the one beating back this virus like no other. Meanwhile, someone tell that to Anthony Fauci. 14 days, new cases are down 26%. For the last uh, two months, we've had a vaccine. 150 million Americans have received at least one dose. 45% have gotten one. 32% fully vaccinated. Can you imagine if Johnson Johnson didn't have that ridiculous pause? But Anthony Fauci continues to, I don't know, downplay this. I am so done with this guy, I can't put into words. Listen to what he's saying, of course, on CNN, who never challenges him. Cut six. But we've really got to not declare victory prematurely. So we're in the late innings, but it's not over. That's the thing we really got to get people to appreciate. We're going in the right direction. We're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But now's not a time to declare victory. So you think the seventh, the eighth inning, the late innings, what, what inning are you talking about? How, how about the, the bottom of the sixth? Bottom Try that one. Sixth. Yeah, it's okay. I'll take the bottom of the six if it's the new rules Major League Baseball has on the second game of the doubleheader, which says the game ends in seven. All right. People need hope. They need to understand they're doing the right thing. They need advocacy to get to the vaccine. And I'm not going to tell anybody what to do. I'm going to tell you that I got vaccinated and I felt great. No problem. Most people I know have don't have a problem. If you do, just know it's going to be a quick day or two. Do the research. But if it's like I really trust our uh, the president's warp operation warp speed. I trust the people that have been telling me it's good. I trust the fact that the doctors are getting it. And I also know this. I'm not wearing a vac. I'm, you will never see me wear a, a mask outside ever, period. Um, barely keep it on in the gym. I'm walking through this building. I barely wear a mask unless someone's uncomfortable. I'm not going to do it. I can't transfer. I can't get the virus. And in terms of what the president's doing, you might be on President Trump and be disappointed he didn't want to wear a mask. Well, that's up to you, not to me. Everyone was vaccinated around him or got or is testing around him regularly. But this president is given the absolute wrong message. He's totally freaked out by it and is making everyone say, why do I get it? Admiral Brett Girard has seen the antics with the masks of the president of the United States with Jimmy Carter, who's 111, 
They're both not wearing masks. Fine. They go outside. He puts the mask on. Do you under, You say that you have to set a good example. Prove it. Here's Admiral Giroir, who ran Operation Warp Speed. Cut 10. If you're fully vaccinated and you're around other people who are vaccinated, whether that's in a party or a cruise ship, you don't need to wear a mask. You just really don't. Uh, the chances are so low of you having it, of you transmitting it, of you giving it to someone um, that you really don't need that. We didn't need to wear masks outside anyway. It was a big uh, non-moment last week when the CDC said if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask outside. Uh, we didn't need to do that the entire time. Ever. And we knew that. I'm saying to myself, wait, am I misunderstanding? And remember the CDC director. I played all the time. The CDC, CDC director, Walensky, came out uh, February and said there's no proof once vaccinated that you can carry the virus. That means go anywhere, anytime, at any moment. Got it? That means you want to go to the basketball game, the playoff game's about to start, you want to go see a baseball game, you should be able to go and not be a Ranger fan. The Rangers can do it. We should be selling out stadiums and arenas now. And if you want to do something at the private business, if the NBA wants to make a rule about vaccinations or testing, they've already proven they could do it. So do it. Get a rapid test, a vaccination proof, and let people in. Brit Hume has seen the antics at the highest level. It's unexplainable, unacceptable. He's having fun with it. Cut 12. They go back outside where they're farther apart than before from their from the people they're visiting, and they put masks on. Now, this has got to be theater. I've been trying to think through today what possibly motivates Biden to do this all the time, to walk outside the White House down to, to, to a group of porters by himself yes. wearing a mask. So it doesn't, he doesn't infect himself. It doesn't make any sense. Yes. So I, I think that what he thinks is, or, or someone thinks there, is that there is a subset of the Democratic Party who were completely freaked out. You, apparently in New York, you go around the city of New York these days, you see people everywhere, outdoors, walking down the street, um, running, whatever, wearing masks. Yes. You see a little of it elsewhere as well. Uh, people outdoors wearing masks. It's not necessary, but somebody believes in it. And I, I, my cynical side, and I don't want to think that way, says Democrats know I can't get $6 trillion or $4 trillion more if this looks like it's over. That's why Fauci says we're in the bottom of the sixth. And that's why Joe Biden at 78 walking around with a mask, even though he's fully vaccinated and wants us to believe the vaccine works. I want to take your calls on this. one 866 This is something Republicans run on authentically. Not same-sex marriage, not uh, the Marriage Act, traditional, nothing about that. This is real. Republicans have been saying school choice forever. Now's the time to say, for example, case in point. But don't say it to the traditional Republican voter. Get this message to the cities because they're not going to hear it unless you send congressmen and women into Manhattan. Let them know in these parent groups, these PTA meetings that if Republicans had their way and they get their power, these kids would have an option to go private school with the money that's already been allocated to them over the union, over the union's objections, because they're not they haven't sold their soul to the union, unlike Democrats. When we, by the way, if I'm 78 years old and 40 million dollars went into my coffers, I'd say I'm still doing the right thing. Back in a moment. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. 
It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. They did uphold the suspension, yes. They said it was right for him, uh, uh, right for Facebook to suspend Trump because he was in clear violation of promoting people and, and encouraging people who were engaged in violence. At the same time, the Oversight Board says it was not appropriate for Facebook to place an indefinite suspension on the president. And, and really what they're getting to there and what they explain is that this was very much an ad hoc decision. There are not clear policies from Facebook about how you would apply this across the board, particularly to political leaders in other countries. And therefore, the Oversight Board is asking Facebook, giving them six months, to come up with clear standard policies whereby they could apply something like this across the board. How many people does the Ayatollah Khomeini have to kill? Khomeini have to kill before you realize uh, that they, he should be banned. And what about President Xi? How many people does he have to put in concentration camps in order for China's uh, g- government to have their Twitter fee, uh, their Twitter account banned? What about Russia? Vladimir Putin has he killed? Has he tried to poison enough people uh, in order to get Russia's uh, banned? So there's a huge problem, and that is the advisory board deciding that there are no rules for keeping Donald Trump permanently banned. Well, they do see a problem, and they do want to extend it for now. It's humiliating. I mean, for the president of the United, former president of the United States, a guy who could be president again, to not be on any social media, remember, it was, um, it was disconcerting to a lot of people, a lot of other leaders, uh, including France. Donna, you're listening in New York. Hey, Donna. Hi. Talking about schools? Your grandkids are still out of school for a year? No, sir. They've been at, they were out of school until March 8th of this year from last year. Okay. They... They went back two days a week. Then in April, they went back full time. Yep. And now for, now from May through the end of the school year, they do not have school anyway, in any, any way on Fridays because they, were, they did not use the Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. No days that were allotted for the school year. Mm -hmm. So the teachers are not going to teach the kids on Fridays. They're having three-day weekends. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so no one's going the extra mile for the extraordinary reason. How, how much did your kids suffer, grandkids suffer? 
Uh, well, my the oldest one is a senior this year, so he lost you know almost the whole year. He he's a lacrosse player. They finally um, started playing lacrosse, which is a good thing. And then the younger one is a fourth grader, and he has lost so much. It's it's just so sad. He'll and Donna, you know up. what makes it so much worse? It's unnecessary. Correct. I know. I know. Uh, but right. um, I just I just well, wanted to let let you know about how how they don't have to use those snow days unless it's in their contract. But why would they do that? In any other walk of life, we do it. If there's a restaurant has been closed, we open up an extra day, an extra shift. We have additional parties because you got to make a profit. Not if you work for a bureaucracy. Hey, I have it coming to me. I'm taking it. It's not the attitude you would have in the private industry. And, you know, again, that's a union decision. Individual teachers are usually the most dedicated people I know. Think about your grade school teachers and what the impact they've had on you. Back in a moment with Larry Kudlow. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Obviously, a platform has the right of what they're able to do, but they can't enjoy the benefits of, of one, being a monopoly, and two, of of not having any litigation that comes uh, uh, against them for any type of discrimination or disparate impact that may result from that. And so a private company can do a lot of things, but what they shouldn't have is the protection of the federal government, which when these platforms were uh, were put up, there was not a content monitor. You you, you Uh had a contract. You had something that you actually did. And what they are finding now is is that they become the social police for what is good and right. And we've seen it too many times where they're taking down posts. And right now, that is Mark Meadows instantly responding to the news that Facebook will not reinstate the president of the United States. While the board came out and said, uh, Facebook, you asked me to ban the board, but you have no policies for banning people. You can't permanently ban people without giving me a criteria first. I want to get the reaction from Larry Kudlow. He works uh, shoulder to shoulder with the president at the White House as his chief economic advisor. Uh, Larry, what's your reaction to the Facebook ban staying? Well... (laughs) I think it's wrong, number one. I don't think they have the authority to be an editor or a publisher. Right. Look, when you go back in time to the mid-90s, when the Decency Act, the Federal Communications Decency Act was passed, I think it was 1996, these new social media um, companies were regarded as common carriers, quote-unquote, meaning you could use them. You put anything on them, and they get they get published. Okay, there was no issue of uh, moderators or censorship. But what's happened down through the years, and particularly the last couple of years under Trump, is that they are no longer a common carrier. Not everyone can use it uh, just to get it into the public information stream. But in fact, the owners, the management, uh, has decided that they can ban some, and that's a matter of judgment, which essentially, you know, puts them in a newspaper category uh, or publishers or editors. They're making editorial content uh, decisions. And therefore, I think their liability shield, the so-called Section 230, 230, should either be removed, Brian, or certainly modified in some significant way. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's gonna, not going to happen right now with the, the Democrats in charge, although if they were thinking clearly, they would, because it's eventually going to come back to hit them. But banning a former president really was disconcerting, Larry, in that I know he's your friend and you work for him, but I saw Macron weigh in. I saw uh, Merkel weigh in. They're thinking to themselves, yeah, Facebook, imagine if they could do that to Trump, they could do that to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And they just have no right to do that. I mean, the president is the president, first of all. And you can't squelch his own free speech. It's just a ludicrous idea. But, you know, what we've learned, Brian, is it goes much deeper than just the president. I mean, they can squelch anything they want. And they do. They can, yeah, they can squelch um, posts that criticize the CDC or have contrary points of view about whether you should wear a mask uh, indoors or outdoors. It goes down to mundane things like that. They can post, um, you know, conserve that. What is it? They they took off um, an interview or some kind of discussion by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, for heaven's sakes. I mean, that is absolutely ludicrous. And what it boils down to, I think, in the most part, is that it's censorship of conservatives, not liberals. There may be some odd, you know, the odd liberal uh, taken down, but mostly I'll bet you 99 percent of its conservatives uh, while meanwhile they leave on, you know, Facebook or YouTube or any of these places. They're happy to leave on the writings of Lenin or Marx right. or Joe Stalin or Mao Zedong. So it, it's gotten to uh, really they're cooking their own goose. And eventually this is all going to be changed. But as you know, Larry, the Facebook stock goes up. Right. And they haven't really paid a price. Twitter hasn't paid a price for not having the president on, even though he's done so much because he kept using Twitter uh, maybe for the last eight years. Yeah, well, it's a good point. Uh, I don't think Twitter's doing that well. Uh, I think Facebook is doing that well. And there are other forms of, of censorship. Google uh, censors what ads uh, can be put on. You know what search engines can be put on. Uh, Apple, for example, wouldn't use Parler on its apps, which essentially did Parler. And Parler was, you know, probably the the most even-handed. Yeah. Uh, some say even pro-conservative um, social media site. So yeah. Now that's a different issue, I might add, than the one being argued by Senator Hawley and others that you have to break up these companies. Um, I'm not as favorably inclined to that, and I'm not favorably inclined that the government would be in charge of breaking up these kind of companies. I think this has to do with the issue of content, the issue of editorial, the issue of them becoming a publisher, much like a newspaper and much like, you know, you can sue a newspaper for like, you know, you can uh, sue for libel. And, and that's a very powerful deterrent, it seems to me. Right. But if they keep buying Instagram and their competitors, that might be an issue. But the Congress should have stopped that a long time ago because now he's effectively well, yeah, banned that, from Instagram and Facebook. Right. That's it. Yes. And the Justice Department and the FTC uh, should have looked into that and they can look into it. Uh, anytime they want or retroactively, if you will, uh, because you, you run in the traditional issue regarding competition versus monopoly or oligopoly is their consumer harm. Right. That's what Judge Bork said uh, 25 some odd years ago. And I think at this point, we're all pretty much agreed that there is consumer harm because consumers of all stripes do not enjoy free speech and therefore they are harmed. 
and their advertisements may be harmed in the case of uh, Google, for example, and the search engine. So, yeah, there's no reason why DOJ and FTC can't look into this. There's no reason why the FCC can't look into this with respect to the liability shield. So Larry Cudlow with us today. You know, he hosts on FBN uh, the four and seven. We came to financial terms with him, got him out of the uh, Trump White House, and now he's here. Uh, so Larry, I got to ask you, yesterday Janet Yellen, I looked up at, uh, I was working out, I looked up and I said, what the heck happened to the market? It turns out, and you stop me if I'm wrong here, Janet Yellen, who is the Se- Treasury Secretary, who is also head of the Fed, said in an interview with The Atlantic uh, that was released Tuesday, she defended the administration's new spending proposals and said the central bank could handle inflationary pressures with modest interest rate increases. Why did that hurt the market so severely? Well, she actually suggested that interest rates are going to go up. And that was the risk of an overheated economy. So, you know, for that moment in time, it was a shining moment in time. She spoke the truth. <laughs> right. And then and then she got called on the carpet by her White House masters, and she had to walk the whole thing back. Now, Brian, in my experience, I have seen that happen before, and I bet you we're going to see it happen again. Right. I understand. So they want to— I mean, Yellen—look, Yellen was basically right, okay— you can't have a booming economy, which is what we have now. And I, I love booming economies. Uh, but in terms of natural market forces, uh, at some point, market interest rates, I'm not even talking about the Fed funds target rate. Just market forces are going to go up. Right now, you have a 10-year bellwether treasury note at about 160, 1.6%. Uh, you got... Real GDP growing at six and a half. Nominal GDP is growing at uh, uh, over 10 percent. The inflation rate in the first quarter was over 4 percent. So these market rates are too low and they're going to go up and the Fed's going to have to let them go up and they will go up. That's basically what she was saying. And by the way, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. It won't harm the economy. It might even help the economy and lengthen the boom. In other words, Yellen actually said a pretty um, a pretty good thing, a pretty serious uh, analytical thing as a former Fed chair. But the White House didn't much like it. I love that pulling back your Treasury Secretary. By the way, that's mo- that's no mean feat. In four years, I don't recall Steve Mnuchin ever been pulled back. Uh, but she was. So the big talk over the weekend was, hey. You know, the economy really, the rescue package that passed is the reason why the economy's coming back. I mean, does anyone actually believe that? The economy's coming back because of his rescue package? Clara, you know the reality of this. The money, most of that money's not even out the door, is it? Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, of the $1.9 trillion recently in this, in passed in January, and then you had the $900 billion plus in December. He even had some spillover, Brian from the CARES Act uh, a year ago in uh, early April. There's at least a trillion, there's probably one and a half, maybe even as much as two trillion of that stuff that's not spent. I mean, look at, uh, outside of the White House, nobody believes what you just asserted. Uh, Don't forget, the economy grew in the third quarter at uh, what, 33% of the annual rate after getting killed 
from the pandemic and the mitigation. It dropped about 30% in Q2. It went up over 30% in Q3. But then it went up over 4% in Q4, and it went up 6.4% in the Q1 of the new year. Now, all that stuff comes before the Biden package. The Biden package had some effect on March consumer spending, okay? Uh, the check, uh, the checks uh, probably kicked in. I don't deny that. But what about all those other quarters? Uh, by the way, this next quarter, uh, which is after the checks have been done, the Atlanta Fed GDP now is predicting 13% wow. in Q2. Uh, so that's a big number. But you don't so, get. But if that yeah. number sinks into people, they'll say, "Why do I need this Families Act of 1.85 trillion? Why do I need infrastructure at 2.6 trillion?" Anita Dunn says she is a she's advisor to the president. She's willing to negotiate with Republicans. Let's listen. Cut 28. The president has been clear that he is willing to negotiate, that he's willing to compromise, and that he believes that Democrats and Republicans should be able to find common ground. The president has said his red line is in action, that we cannot afford not to make these investments. He wants to move this package forward in a bipartisan way, if that's possible. Do you believe it's possible? Do you believe that he thinks it's possible? No, absolutely not. I mean, look, the difference, the spread between the, the GOP position is, let's call it $650 billion, more or less, and no major tax hikes. Okay, they want to use user fees and tolls and uh, P3 public-private partnerships and bonding, which is quite sensible, and that's how infrastructure should be done. So no big tax hikes and $650 billion. The president is positing um, over $2 trillion, a Green New Deal, and massive, the largest tax hikes, I don't know, since World War II probably, and that's pretty far apart. Now, I've heard a lot of different things. I've interviewed a lot of key senators on the show and on radio, and they're in there talking and discussing, but the gap is so wide. I also know that Vice President Kamala Harris has been on the phone with leading Senate Democrats uh, pulling together their wish list for what will turn out to be a humongous Uh, 51-vote reconciliation package, and I still think that's what's going to happen. The social stuff, you know, the welfare stuff without any workfare provisions is a total non-starter for the GOP, a total non-starter for the GOP. And um, uh, whether Biden – you think Biden's going to drop that? I I don't know. I wish he would, but I just find it hard to believe. I don't think Joe Manchin's going to go for it. He already said he's not going for the – a rise in the corporate tax rate said the most I'll go up is 25, and he thinks the whole thing is too expensive, and it should be just bridges and tunnels, not human infrastructure, which I never heard of um, right. before, but I'm always learning new things, uh, especially, with Larry, with you on FBN. This is a business channel I'll actually watch and do watch. I'm gonna, do you know what's going to be on your show at 4, or is it too early? Uh, no, let's see. We've got some great guests today. We've got Senator Josh Hawley. We've got uh, former Speaker Newt Gingrich, and we've got a whole bunch of smart people. Our show is, uh, we try to be smart, informational, and conversational. No yelling, no screaming. Have a little fun. Try to get some facts out. Uh, it's, no, it's not breaking news that I'm a supply sider, and that's the way I see the world. So 
That's our little niche. And so far, Brian, it's doing pretty darn well. Yeah. Just wait, Larry, how much you're going to like. You're going to like this so much better than CNBC when we actually get people back in the building. <laughs> I'm telling you. I, I was afraid you'd say that. You, you got, I'm telling you, people really like you here. Uh, so, so it was great well, to have I, you. I'm so glad you signed over. Well, I listen, I, the Fox folks have been wonderful to me, including yourself. You're an old pal. The Fox folks have been great, supportive, helpful. Uh, you know, we're launching a show. It's about three months old. It's not such an easy thing to do. But the atmosphere at Fox just is fabulous. Fabulous. It's such a pleasure for me. Right. And you also got a great radio show on 77 WABC. Uh, Larry, thanks so much. We'll look for you tonight at 4. Thanks, Brian. Anytime. You got Take it. Uh, and, of course, it'll be Bye-bye. repeated again at 7, and that's Eastern Time. Back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Discussion around Liz Cheney has reached a fever pitch, and and next week uh, I can't imagine that they will continue to support her in that leadership position. I can tell you that when Democrats quote Liz Cheney more than Republicans quote Liz Cheney, and and her fundamental job, her primary job is communication, that's a problem. And so I I think you'll see a a very different Republican conference, but it's a battle between the swamp and uh, between the America First agenda. And honestly, it's one that uh, I think you'll see some fireworks next week. I think they're going to probably do a vote. And Kevin McCarthy said something similar on our show. That was uh, Mark Meadows talking about Liz Cheney, number three. I'm a fan of hers, always been. Uh, but I think she's making a mistake going out of her way to bring up January 6th every time. Move on. If people bring it up, say, that's part of the past. You know how I voted. And that's pretty much the problem. Kevin McCarthy said this on Fox & Friends, Cut 24. There's no concern about how she voted on impeachment. That decision has been made. I have heard from members concerned about her ability to carry out the job as conference chair, to carry out the message. We all need to be working as one if we're able to win the majority. Remember, majorities are not given, they are earned. And that's about the message about going forward. Combating Joe Biden, what he's done to this border by making it insecure and what's coming across. Just what he's doing here about small businesses, not opening schools, not getting us back to work, back to health, back to normal. That's the message we should be talking about. And they're talking about Elise Stefanik replacing her. President Trump would back that up. Uh, There's a story in Politico right now that says Liz Cheney is not fighting to hold on to her job as conference chair, even as top Republicans openly campaign to replace her. She's like, you want me to move? I'll move. The Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote this. This should be a hopeful moment for the House Republicans. While they're playing defense of minority for now, their prospects for picking up five net seats need to— to regain the majority in 2022 are excellent. That is, unless they devolve into internal brawling over the 2020 election. Yet that's precisely what they seem to be doing, purging Liz Cheney for honesty that would diminish the party. I also think there was a belief after January 6th and being banned from social media that Donald Trump would no longer be the factor he is, but he is. He's just as popular now with the Republicans as he's always been. And he's at 45% with the American people, despite what happened with the second impeachment and and the worst dismount ever from the White House. He's still very much in play and a favorite. In fact, he told um, he he told Daily Wire yesterday 
that his fans will have be happy about his announcement about 2024. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. Happy to be with you. Coming from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. Senator Josh Hawley's going to be with us. You know about his book on big tech. Man, is it appropriate concerning the news we got from Donald Trump and Facebook and Elliot Abrams. He served under the White House and State Departments for Reagan, Bush, as well as Trump. Senior fellow at the Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He formed a brand new coalition to advance U.S. global interests. It's broad, but man, he's got the experience to fulfill it. His vision, I think, is valuable. And after reading Josh Rogan's book, listening to Joe Rogan's podcast with Josh Rogan, you realize how pervasive and how urgent it is, how pervasive China's impact is on our country, how prevalent they are in our in our country, and how urgent it is for us to get on the same page as a country to fight back against them because they want a total and complete takeover. The news I want to share with you is Donald Trump will remain off Facebook. The Oversight Board pointing out there's no criteria for this. They're calling on the management team to come up with a criteria to keep people permanently or intermittently banned. And they're all based on January 6th and what they say the president's role was there. Like it or not, Facebook is still calling their own shots. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is a role for governments outside of the region and international institutions. I've also spoken with world leaders from Canada, Finland, Ireland, Japan, about partnering with us to help the Northern Triangle. Exactly. If you want to solve the problems in Central America, call Ireland. I've always said that. Kamala Harris. What will it take for the VP to actually engage in a coherent way as the borders are? She seems to think meeting with Finland and blaming climate change gets it done. Uh, not me. Number two. I think she's got real problems. I, 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 I've had it with I've had it with her. It's, you know, I, I've lost confidence. Uh, and that is uh, Kevin McCarthy talking off the record. All things GOP. It should be happy times that they're beginning to win on major issues and special elections. And taking the House back should be a given in 18 months. But simmering underneath a Liz Cheney Republican leadership fracturing that could cost her the number three slot. Is this right? Number one. American Federation of Teachers, the country's largest Second largest teachers union influenced the CDC's guidelines on reopening schools. Well, I would say first that's false. The CDC, it's actually longstanding best practice uh, for the CDC to engage with organizations and groups that are going to be impacted by guidance. Uh, there you go. Jen Psaki not telling the truth, trying to fail, trying and failing to explain. That's what Jen Psaki is trying to do now that email exchanges have come public between the CDC and teachers unions showing the AFT has corrupted the science. Plus, we are winning the fight against COVID, despite what Dr. Fauci says. And the Biden contradictory mass behavior continues to befuddle the country and hurt the vaccine effort. 
What am I talking about? I'm talking about actual interchange as a since Sunday these revelations came out between the AFT and CDC. I thought it was follow the science. Yeah, follow the science unless a union gives you $40 million, then do what they say. And a $40 million, $40 million exactly what the DNC, Super PACs, as well as Joe Biden directly got from teachers unions. Here's their payback. They want to say in the CDC guidelines that would normally force them back to school and to work. Instead, they put in special excerpts into the CDC guidelines to benefit them, not kids, them. Here is Bill Bennett, the former Secretary of Education, talking about teachers and the collusion between the two. Cut three. Everybody's very sentimental about the teachers, but not the unions. The union is a creature of the teachers. If the teachers didn't like what the union was doing, they could pull them back. I agree with you. A lot of the teachers really want to go back and don't agree with the position of the union. But there's a fair number of teachers who are absolutely in line with what the uh, AFT and President Biden are doing. Keep raising the, sta- keep raising the standards for safety uh, beyond all reason uh, and give us more money. Uh, so at the end, those teachers are accountable for the organization they've created and which is advocating for them. Uh, we need a little more opposition from those teachers if they feel that strongly. Well, it's true, and they could be speaking out on a regular basis. I had a nurse on this morning that spoke out because she doesn't think grammar schools should have these kids should have these masks on. He said they wear them. Uh, they wear them all, all wrong, number one. Number two, they wear them dirty. Number three, she says these kids can't breathe, and they were complaining to her. They had rashes on their face. One threw up in the mask, and she said, listen, I'm telling these kids not to do it. When the school district said they had to wear them, uh, they suspended her without pay. So it's hard. You know, if they're going to suspend teachers without pay, when you don't make a zillion dollars anyway, it's tough to stand up. Uh, so we'll talk about that in a second. But also, as you know, this is not my opinion. This is in writing. The CDC has been infected by uh, teachers unions, maybe more. Uh, joining us now is Senator Josh Hawley. He's excited and should be about his brand new book, very controversial, The Tyranny of Big Tech. Remember, Simon & Schuster uh, walked away from this book. And then Gregory uh, picked it up, and it's already a bestseller. Senator, welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Senator, breaking news for your very topic of your book, and the president will not be reinstated by Facebook. Number one, uh, the board cites, the oversight board says, you guys never gave us any rules. You want us to be the board, but there's no rules. you got to come up with some rules about permanently banning and what the criteria is. But for now, he's banned. What's your reaction? Oh, I think it's a joke. I mean, it just shows you, Brian, that this whole process is a joke. But this oversight board is not any different from Facebook itself. You know, I mean, some of this reporting about it acts like it's a court. It's not a court. The oversight board is just Facebook. And what we had today was Facebook saying that it's okay for Facebook to make up the rules as they go along and do whatever the heck they want. I mean, this should come as no surprise to anybody who has followed the behavior of Facebook and these big tech monopolies. They do whatever the heck they want. They don't ask permission. They don't follow their own terms. They don't actually have any rules that they follow, and they censor conservatives. And as long as they have this kind of power, as long as they are monopoly monopolists and have monopoly power, they're going to keep right on doing it, which is why we need to break them up. Breaking them up. I just talked to Larry Kudlow a half hour ago, and he says, I'm not for breaking them up. I'm for some regulation there because he feels, though, if you break them up, you'll just have little empires instead of one big empire. You know, I think what will happen is if you break them up, you'll have competition. And, you know, as a free market conservative, that's what I believe in. I think we want more competitors. We want to allow people to, to get into the market and say, hey, if you don't like what Facebook's doing, come over to my platform. Now, Parler tried to do this. 
of course. Parler tried to be an alternative to Twitter, and uh, it was getting some traction. It was still very small, but getting some traction. And what happened? Uh, Twitter got together with Apple and with uh, Amazon and with Google and shut Parler down. I mean, so you talk about monopoly power when you can just eliminate a competitor, as they did in basically 48 hours. That is extraordinary. So my view is that rather than a whole bunch of government regulation, which is I think really what the left wants, the left wants to regulate these companies because they love the fact that these companies are powerful and can tell people what they can and cannot say. They love the censorship. So what the left wants to do is say, yeah, we're going to regulate these companies so they'll do even more censorship. My view is we need more speech, not less. We ought to break the companies up, get some real competition in there, and let's give people a choice. Uh, we're talking to Senator Josh Hawley. Senator, we know Democrats are not going to go along with this, correct? Or have you talked across the aisle and have they expressed concern to you? Yeah, I have talked to across the aisle. And I, I really think, Brian, that while they talk about getting tough on big tech, I think more and more they love big tech and they love big tech's power. They're going to love this decision today. They're going to cheer that on. They're going to say, absolutely, there needs to be more censorship online. So I think if you really want to do something about censorship, if you really want to do something about big tech's power, I don't think the Democrats are going to go for it because big tech has become way too important for them, way too important for their effort to control speech in this country. And so as conservatives, we're just going to have to forge ahead. We're going to have to continue to make the case to the American people. Good news is the American people with us, they don't want to have their lives run by these tech companies. They don't want their families' lives to be run by these tech companies, and we've got to stand up and fight for that. Senator, uh, no question about it from the outside perspective. You wrote the book on the tyranny of big tech. From the outside perspective, a turning point was 2016 because Brad Parscale and the Trump team did a better job using Silicon Valley's apparatus from Facebook especially on down to get their message out, uh, targeting their message to the people they needed as voters and wanted to convert as followers. And Silicon Valley seemed to be embarrassed by that. And in an effort to correct that embarrassment, they went ahead and did what they did in 2020 and now are finishing the job here with the former president of the United States. Do you look at 2016 as a turning point? I do. Yeah, I think it really is a big tipping point, Brian. I think that is when they realized that, uh, lo and behold, conservatives could be pretty darn good at social media. And the Trump campaign ran, in words of Facebook's own people, ran the best campaign that Facebook had ever seen, used Facebook's tools better than anything they'd ever imagined before. And you're right. What Facebook said after that was, we can't let this happen again. And the left, the left, the woke left went to these companies and said, you can't let this happen. You can't let conservatives, conservative candidates, conservative commentators, you can't let them use your platforms in a way that's actually fair. You have to censor them. And so you really see the beginning of the censorship effort. They really got the team after 2016. And then by the time we get to 2020, you know, Twitter and Facebook are openly censoring the New York Post, openly intervening in the presidential election to suppress reporting and information. The January of this year, they're openly the president of the right. United States, platforming conservatives. That's where we are, and that's why we have to do something. Yeah, Senator Josh Hawley, uh, he's with us now. The tyranny of big tech as we just get word the President Trump will remain suspended from uh, Facebook, which matters. Uh, look, the President of the United States said, I set up my own site. I'm able to put out missives and reports, and I'll always make news. But it's not the same of having that infrastructure in creating news. Uh, but yet, if you look at the president right now, Senator, his, his approval rating remains at 45 percent, about 95 percent with Republicans uh, how does he feel, does he let you know, about big tech and the hammer they put down on him? 
Well, I think he's made no secret about the fact that he thinks these companies have too much power, and you could see what they did during the election and the aftermath, and you can see the the abuse of their power. And you know, Brian, the, the problem with this is is that when you get monopolies like this, what, what they really do is that they they abuse their position in the market. In this case, these companies have gotten big and powerful with government's help. I mean, that's part of the problem here. Uh, Facebook didn't just become Facebook because of the ingenuity of Mark Zuckerberg. Hardly, Facebook got all kinds of handouts from the federal government, including a big handout in the form of, of an immunity, special immunity shield that's worth billions of dollars to them every year. Same with Google, same with Twitter, same really with Apple. So these companies have got a special deal, a special right. carve out. It's what's made them powerful, and now they're just doing whatever the heck they want. Their power, which usually involves censoring conservatives. And, and we've got to say, no, we're not going to put up with this. Senator, there's a couple of things that are happening. Governor DeSantis, the governor of Texas, they've come out and they, they said, if you deplatform any, uh, any high profile person, any business leader, we're going to fine you. And different states are doing that. But is this going to be effective? Well, I think it's a great step. I mean, I really applaud them for, for doing something and not just sitting back and saying, oh, well, you know, there's nothing we can do. I hope for the best. I, I think taking these actions at the state level is critical. I think state lawsuits are critical. When I was attorney general of my state of Missouri, I filed an antitrust investigation against Facebook, the first one in the nation, against Google. And uh, now we've got the states are suing uh, these companies for antitrust violations. That's really, really important. So I think absolutely any action we can get. Right. At this state level is really important. It's no excuse for Congress not to act, though. We've got to keep the pressure up. But you know what's amazing, too, is other countries have not been as, uh, as uh, you know, even as inviting as we have been. I mean, in Russia, there's crackdown, right? I mean, in uh, there's different countries that have seen the, the power of Facebook and pushed back on it, including uh, mochi, European Union nations. Yeah, that's right. The European Union has actually gotten really tough on Google and, and Facebook and, and particularly looking at how they've abused their market power and, and how they've acted like a, like monopolists and shutting out competition and uh, extracting stuff from consumers without our consent, our data mostly. So the United States has been, has been really slow on this, and I think it's because uh, these companies have purchased so much influence in Washington, D.C. You go back to the Obama administration in 2012, the federal government was on the verge of suing Google for major violations. And what happened? The Google CEO flew to Washington, went to the White House, and talked him out of it. And lo and behold, the federal government stood down and said, oh, okay, well, I guess not. I mean, that's happened over and over again. Right. And we've got to draw the line now and say no more. All right, uh, Senator, thanks so much. Best of luck with the book. And I'm so glad you persevered and published it, despite your publisher walking away from you. My hope is you got to keep your advance. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You got it. Uh, bottom of the hour, Elliot Abrams. Next you, one 408 Busy day. Uh, a blow to the president, the former president, but maybe it's liberating as well. Your take next. It's Brian Kilmeade. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There is a role for governments outside of the region and international institutions. I've also spoken with world leaders from Canada, Finland, Ireland, Japan, about partnering with us to help the Northern Triangle. Very interesting. If I was given the job, border czar, 
Number one, I would be 20 times better than Kamala Harris because I would try. Number two, I would show up. I would go from the Rio Grande Valley to Yuma. I'd be in a Humvee buzzing around trying to figure out the gaps in the fence that I could put up and stay politically viable because um, I'm a Democrat if I was Kamala Harris. And I would say, what do you need? What can I get you? Then I'd visit every single facility. And then I would fly to those triangle countries. And because Donald Trump showed me the right way to do it, I would say, guys, you are in charge of these three countries. And your citizens are so fed up with you, in many cases, in order to make money. And others, they just want a better life. They're going 9,000 miles to America and getting into our country illegally. We are giving you hundreds of millions of dollars in aid. That will stop as of now until I see significant border security on each one of your borders. I'm going to leave an envoy in your country. The, the embassies will be in charge. And when they give me the thumbs up, you get your money back. And here's something else. If it's going well and you truly do crack down on your people and the money that you were getting is going to uh, programs that will keep your people in your borders, then we maybe even increase that. And I'm going to talk about different ways to bring industry there. But you're not going to hold up me and my country by terrorizing our border, by overwhelming it from a humanitarian perspective, let alone those with ugly intentions like trafficking drugs across our border. Kamala Harris has not tried to do her job. Instead, she said in June, I'll go to Guatemala. I'll do a Zoom call with the president of Mexico. I might stop there in June on the way back from Guatemala. I am not sure. She has gone to the northern border. She's gone to Wisconsin. She's gone to New Hampshire. She's gone to California. But she has not found her way to New Mexico, California, Arizona, or Texas. Here's more. Cut 20. This is a priority for our nation and a role that I take very seriously. The citizens of El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras are leaving their homes at alarming rates. They are suffering. They are in pain. Many are experiencing unimaginable anguish. And so we are focused on addressing both the acute factors and the root causes of migration. And I believe this is an important distinction. We must focus on both. Okay. How about do something, anything? When we come back, we talk foreign policy. Elliot Abrams got a brand new, brand new pack. It's called a new coalition for advancing U.S. global interests. What does he think that should be? We'll find out in a moment. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. President Biden said we're going to have to compete with them, and the, the rules have to be the same for everyone. Well, look, China cheats. And we have to be able to defeat them on the battlefield of the 21st century. You know, they, they steal trade secrets. They oppress their people. They bully their neighbors. So Joe Biden sends John Kerry to China to try to cut a deal on climate. And at the same time, China is trying to cut our throats on everything else. I really don't doubt him. That's a doctor, too. That's Senator Barrasso of Wyoming. That's one of the challenges. You won't find anybody in the American 
uh, anybody in America that doesn't believe that China is a competitor, a threat, a rival, however you say it, uh, they have to be dealt with, and they believe they're going to overtake us and become the world's number one superpower, not even co-superpower, number one superpower. Is that what Elliot Abrams thinks? He serves at the White House State Departments for the Reagan, Ronald Reagan administration, George W. Bush, and even the Trump administration. He is now a senior fellow at the Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I just noted, too, he's got a brand-new coalition it's called To Advance U.S. Global Interests, and it contains 75 other national security scholars. And I think it's an, it looks to be an extremely important organization called the Vandenberg, uh, the Vandenberg Coalition. Uh, Elliot Abrams, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. Great to be here, Brian. So uh, I was thrilled, number one, um, that you joined the Trump administration, needs your experience. And he gave you room to roam there, too. When you were done, a lot of people would have said, okay, now I'm going to relax. What made you say to yourself, no, I'm going to form this coalition and continue to make an impact? Well, you know, this is a coalition of conservatives who believe in American leadership. We don't believe that things are going to go well if the United States pulls back. For one thing, because of China, as you said. But we were divided over Trump. In this group of 75, there are several people like me, uh, H.R. McMaster, who was National Security Advisor, who served in the Trump administration. There were others who were never Trumpers. So we were divided for four years, but we were not divided over policy. And now is the time for anybody who believes in a strong America to get together, uh, because the threats are not going away. The, the threats and challenges are getting worse. So we need to come together, and that's the purpose of this coalition. You know, Vandenberg was the, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Arthur Vandenberg from Michigan. He was an isolationist in the 30s. After Pearl Harbor, he changed, and he became the greatest partner of Harry Truman in putting together things like NATO and the Marshall Plan. He was Truman's guy in the Senate for doing this. You know the expression, politics stops at the water's edge? Yes. Most people know that line. That's Arthur Vandenberg. Nobody knows who said it. That was Senator Vandenberg. So that's why we chose that that name. Uh, and that's the purpose of the Vandenberg Coalition, So to bring together this group. Do you agree on everything? I mean, you had 75 people. Uh, collectively, usually conservatives are on the same page. But when President yep. Trump started bringing up forever wars, hey, we're done with Iraq, I'm done with Syria, I'm done with Afghanistan, a lot yep. of the Republican side started saying, yeah, I, I hear you. You know, it costs a lot of money, and what are we getting out of it? China's not wasting any money in these uh, smaller countries worried about these terror groups. Why are we there? Where do you stand, Elliot? We don't agree on everything. Uh, I, I think I would say on China, we all agree. Yep. I'd say on the defense budget, we all agree. On the need to, you know, you have the Biden administration now announcing $6 trillion of new spending, yep. but they're reducing the defense budget. China's not reducing its defense budget. I think on Afghanistan, there's probably disagreement. I think you'll find some people who would say, uh, yeah, time to get out. And I think the majority, though, would probably say this is dangerous because in a year or two or three, you could see al Qaeda back in there. I think you're right. I 100 percent think you're right. And guess who else does? Hillary Clinton. Cut 32. I think that uh, our government has to focus on two huge consequences. One, um, the potential collapse of the Afghan government and a takeover 
of Afghanistan by the Taliban, uh, probably with a resumption of uh, civil war in certain parts of the country, um, but a largely uh, Taliban-run government. So if the Taliban take back Afghanistan, is everyone going to say, what is, Donald, you know, what is Donald Trump and Joe Biden doing? How dare we fight for 20 years and put the Taliban, allow the Taliban to get back in power? And even Hillary Clinton sees that as an issue. Yeah, I think, you know, I think what Americans don't want is sending 100,000 troops someplace for 10 or 20 years. But, you know, we were down to about 3,000 in Afghanistan. We were down to about 2,500 or 3,000 in Syria. And that small number with very, very low casualties, was able to hold together uh, the, the local troops, the national troops. So we're not talking about, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan kind of forever wars. We're talking about a careful use, uh, frequently at special forces, uh, to try to hold something together. And I think, you know, Biden's going to regret this if a couple of years down the road, while he'll, he's still president, we see al-Qaeda back in Afghanistan. And listen to this. This is how right you are, uh, Elliot Abrams, because the Secretary of State is basically saying that he, he expects the Taliban to take over. Listen to what he said two weeks ago. If the Taliban has any expectation of getting any international acceptance, of not being treated as a pariah, it's going to have to respect uh, the rights of women and girls. Any uh, country that moves backwards on that, that tries to repress them, will not have that international recognition, will not have that international status, and indeed... Uh, we will take action to uh, uh, to make sure, to the best of our ability, that they can't do that. Okay, there's so much wrong with that statement. Do you really <laughs> think the Taliban cares about women's rights? Do you think China cares about the Taliban caring about women's rights? Or Nobody cares about that human's rights except for the West. And they are not going to have a say in this. And we're going to pull out. So we're not even going to have leverage in this. We'll have a little bit of leverage through things like foreign aid program. We could help them or we could refuse to help them. But... I don't think they, I agree with you. I don't think they care. We need to be honest with ourselves. Uh, if we're pulling out, we're not going to have the ability to influence that. Let us not make believe that we're going to retain that kind of influence. Now, look, I don't think we should send U.S. troops to defend uh, the rights of girls to go to school in Afghanistan. That's something we want, it's something we like. But it's not a national security interest of the United States. We do have a national security interest in preventing terrorist groups like al-Qaeda from using Afghanistan as a safe haven. And if we pull 100 percent of our troops out, I think that's the danger, that there'll be nothing to stop them from getting back in there. I agree. And just and what you do is, you know, where they we set uh Thankfully, over 18 months, we've only had two casualties. We have more casualties in uh, base accidents here in America. So we're not asking to fight on a daily basis, but I think we agree on that. I want to bring you to China and what happened in Alaska a couple of weeks, about a month ago, when China and the Biden officials met face-to-face through a translator. Listen to the China's tone with the, with the Biden officials. The challenges facing the United States in human rights are deep-seated. They did not just emerge over the past four years, such as Black Lives Matter. It did not come up only recently. The United States does not have the qualification to say that it wants to speak to China from a position of strength. 
So they're using some of the protests that we have here with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and saying you have no right to condemn us for the concentration camps where we've either killed or tortured millions of Muslim Uyghurs. So if you're sitting there, Elliot, what do you say? It's laughable on its face. And I think actually I think the Biden guys did a reasonable job in in saying to the Chinese, this is completely absurd. And we're not going to take lectures on human rights from the worst abuser of human rights in the world. But there's a problem, which is we're not going to be able to resist China without a defense budget. I mean, I really worry about defense spending going down because we you know, they're modernizing their forces. We need to do the same. Uh, They're very aggressive. So, you know, you can't do this with rhetoric. You're not going to stop China with speeches. You're going to stop it with a powerful U.S. military. And I worry about uh, actually a kind of consensus growing in Congress that, well, we're spending all this money at home, so we don't have enough money left to spend any on the military. That's dangerous. No kidding. And they're making it clear they want the South China Sea. They've been saying that for about 10 years now. They say it's theirs. And they said back off on Taiwan. And as you watch over the weekend, one of the many things that Taiwan has, not only they are ally, but they also have all our silicon chips they make because we stopped making them. So we can't have it. We don't have an iPhone. You know, we don't have cars. If they decide they're going to take Taiwan, even though they it's going to be a lot tougher than they think. Where do you stand with that? And how do you avoid a world war or a war with China, but at the same time uphold the status quo there and stop the and, and stop the aggression? You know, the, the one word answer, though, it's not just one word deterrence. The, the Chinese are going to make a judgment about us. They're going to make a judgment about our military capabilities and our willpower. And thus far, the judgment they've made, you know, year after year after year is, uh, no, can't do it. Too much trouble. Leave Taiwan alone. We need to make sure that they continue to have that judgment of our capability and our willpower, our intentions to help the Taiwanese defend themselves. Uh, So far, so good, you know. But now we have a a new administration, and the Chinese are going to be making the same judgment what are the Americans going to do? And that's, you know, that, that brings us back into a zone of danger. Um, and again, I think it's a, part of it is they look at the American military. How many ships do we have? Where are they? What are our capabilities? So I do, I worry a lot about this. But I tell you, I think if we let this happen, that is the Chinese take over uh, Taiwan, I think that a lot of people around the world are going to see that as the key turning point. That was the moment when the United States stopped being the most powerful country in the world, and it flipped to China. We can't let it happen. A lot of people think it doesn't matter to me. It should. And lastly, if you want to know how pervasive China's infiltration is between our, uh, uh, on our land, uh, listen to what Josh Rogan found out when he wrote this book. It was a great book on China and, and how they're competing with us. Listen to this. The Chinese Communist Party intentionally stokes our racial divides, including our anti-Asian hate, in order to divide our society, to undermine our democracy, to advance its own interests. How do they do that? 
tons and tons of propaganda and trolls, state media. You should have seen it. Well, the first time Yang Jishir, the state counselor of China, met with Tony Blinken, he criticized him about Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, right? Why is he doing that? In the meeting, in the diplomatic meeting, right? And if you look at their embassies and their state media, and it's, I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar enterprise, constantly pumping out, how does America treat its Asians? Look at this statistic, look at that statistic. Now that, in a sense, is a very... Uh, clumsy kind of propaganda. That's what we can see. And it's increasing all the time. And again, with the Facebook groups and the whole thing, all the same stuff that the Russians did. It's meant to drive a wedge into our society to inflame our existing tensions, again, to undermine our own confidence in our society and our democracy. Oh, look, democracies are so messy. But you have freedom of the press, but everyone's pushing fake news, you know. So do you see how insidious this is? I guess this is not news to you, but maybe it is to our audience. It's terribly insidious, and they do it. Uh, it's not just us. Uh, there was a report today in London. They do it in, the, in England as well. They spend billions of dollars on it. They have all these Confucius programs in colleges and universities around the United States. Uh, look, uh, what you said at the beginning is right. They don't want to be equal to the United States. They want to be the country that has uh, leadership in the world. They want to be what the British, this old British phrase, top country. And one of the things that we are trying to argue in this new organization, Vandenberg Coalition, is we cannot let that happen to protect our security, to protect our economy, to protect our freedom. We cannot let that happen. Elliot, lastly, uh, Venezuela, I know you were working there to get this communist out of our hemisphere. How come it didn't work? Where are we at? Uh, things are worse, not better. I think, you know, the, the, the problem is they get a lot of outside support. China, Russia, Iran, Cuba. Cuba, supporting that regime. And I think that's the key reason that it didn't work. Um, I think we should not give up on it. You know, these regimes can last a long time, but they don't last forever. And hopefully uh, we isolate and take down uh, this bus driver seems to stay in power. Uh, Elliot, uh, look forward to hopefully hear from your group and you guys gain some power and interest. And when Republicans get control, uh, they'll tap your, your new coalition. It's called Great. To Advance U.S. Global Interest, uh, uh, the Vandenberg Group. I appreciate it. Thanks, Elliot. Thank you, Ryan. Bye-bye. Right. Of course. one uh, 866 We'll come back. We'll take your calls. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I seem to think, by the way, it's always an education to talk to someone so experienced and so conversant in every area of the globe who's been there, like Elliot Abrams. Hopefully we'll have him on again. Let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. 833-600-GOLD. That's 833-600-G-O-L-D. Well, Peloton's in a little bit of trouble recalling all his treadmills after a series of injuries and one death. The, uh, the U.S. Consumer Production Safety Commission previously warned Peloton's treadmills are a problem. Major reversal, though, Peloton announced Wednesday voluntary recalls of both the treadmill and treadmill machines. The tread and treadmill machines, I should say. It seems to be okay to still bike. I got a Peloton. It's fantastic. I fully recommend it, but I don't have the treadmill. Next. 
Michigan Governor Whitmer to receive the JFK Profile and Courage Award. If there's anyone less worthy, I don't know who it is. She's been terrible, shut down, locked down, letting her husband do one thing, traveling to Florida. Is that courage? What a joke that is. Quote, these heroes went above and beyond for their community and our country and remind us that we all can make a difference if we enter the call to serve. That is Schlossenberg, Caroline Kennedy's, uh, Jack is first name, Caroline Kennedy's husband. You picked the wrong person. Was she up against uh, Cuomo? I mean, it's the only other competition I think she would have to face. The worst. Next. Coca-Cola pauses aggressive diversity plan after the chief lawyer resigns. Uh, finally, some comeuppance. Scott Lee, the spokesman for the Coke, said uh, Gaten's replacement, Monica Howard Douglas, is now reviewing the plan. Coke has paused the controversial diversity plan, including penalties on outside law firms that they failed to meet racial diversity quotas. Some question whether Gaten's policies violated Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Hey, guys, just make soda, please. Next. Dozens of major corporations speak out against new Texas voting law. They don't say specifically what they don't like. They're just speaking out. Good luck. J.P. Morgan, we salute you. The CEO came out, Jamie Dimon, and said this. That's fine. We have the same principles about free and fair and open elections as most other people. Getting into the detail on 50 states, we are not going to do. Smart. Major League Baseball feeling pressure from politically advocacy group to move the All-Star game back to Atlanta. They were protesting outside MLB headquarters. They're being pushed by Home Depot co-founder Bernie Marcus trying to convince baseball they made a big mistake taking the All-Star game in July and moving it to Colorado. Charles Gasparino had this story. He said Job Creators Network President Alfredo Ortiz is taking the lead role in the effort. On Tuesday, the group held a rally in front of uh, in New York City about this. It would be great, but I don't see it happening because uh, Colorado's already got it. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Niall Ferguson will be with us, senior fellow at the Hoover Institute, and author of a brand new book called Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. Uh, his old book, The Square and the Tower, was fantastic. One of the things it predicted, a backlash against the Republicans when it comes to social media and Silicon Valley. That absolutely happened. I don't think you need to tell me. Also, the news uh, that's come across, as expected to me, Donald Trump remains banned from Facebook, a former president banned from a chief uh, American company that is the number one social media company in the world. That includes Instagram because they bought it. And standing by is Jonathan Turley. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. There is a role for governments outside of the region and international institutions. I've also spoken with world leaders from Canada, Finland, Ireland, Japan, about partnering with us to help the Northern Triangle. I've always thought if you want to help the Northern Triangle, call Finland. What will it take to get the VP to engage uh, to engage in the border as borders are? She seems to think a meeting with Finland and Ireland and blaming climate change gets it done. I don't feel that way. Number two. I think she's got real problems. I, 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 I've had it with I've had it with her. It's, you know, I, I've lost confidence. 
all things GOP. It should be happy times as they're beginning to win on issues. They're one on the census. A taking of the House should be 18 months away, but simmering underneath a Liz Cheney Republican leadership fracture that could cost her the number three slot. Where it is, she doesn't care. Number one. American Federation of Teachers, the country's largest, second largest teachers union, influenced the CDC's guidelines on reopening schools. Well, I would say first that's false. The CDC, it's actually longstanding best practice uh, for the CDC to engage with organizations and groups that are going to be impacted by guidance. Well, trying and failing to explain. Uh, that's what Jen Psaki is trying to do now as email exchanges between the CDC and teachers union show the AFT has corrupted the science. Plus, we are winning the fight against COVID despite what Dr. Fauci says. And the Biden contradictory mass behavior continues to befuddle the country and hurt the vaccine effort. Uh, with me right now, Jonathan Turley. Jonathan, welcome back. Hey, thanks. Hey, Jonathan, do you think legally we're watching states sue social media companies saying if you deplatform uh, any of our citizens, especially our public figures, we're going to sue you. That's one way of fighting back against Silicon Valley. Is it effective? I don't think it will be effective. Uh, it still remains a private company. Uh, it's not directly subject to the First Amendment. That doesn't mean that they're not uh, attacking free speech. One of the great mantras today from enablers of these companies is that this isn't a free speech issue because the First Amendment doesn't apply. The First Amendment is not the measure of free speech. It is it is a provision governing uh, how we deal with the government cutting back on free speech. But free speech goes beyond the First Amendment. This is clearly an attack on free speech. It is a corporate control of content on the largest uh, platforms that are used in social media. And so, you know, I think that this should really finally be a wake-up call. I don't know if it will be. There was a time when the Internet was the greatest creation of free speech in the history of mankind. And we have watched these corporations and their enablers, including members of Congress, roll back on that incredible creation. It threatened totalitarian governments. It was the, it was the answer to authoritarianism. It, was, it allowed for pure free speech to exist. And now we have people who are working every day to try to create broader and broader censorship. It is the, the case, and there seems to be an agenda when you see things like Hunter Biden taken down, when you see LeBron James not suspended, when he put a target on a cop's face and said, you're next. Nothing. I mean, if you don't see a double standard in this, there's not a lot of nuance in that. Well, part of the problem I have with this Facebook <laughs> decision is just how convoluted and conflicted it is. I mean, first of all, you have to keep in mind, this is an oversight board selected by the largest censoring company in the world. That is, they over they're the oversight board for a giant censorship operation. And their job is to determine what, quote, standards we want to apply. And so it's not surprising that they said, no, we were right all along to ban him, but we really should have a standard if we're going to permanently ban him. Well, what's that? I mean, that's what, that's what happens when you start out with the assumption that censorship is right, that content modification, as they like to say, is the 
foundation of their work. Then all the stuff just becomes sort of nuanced standard. And that's what happened. Uh, Jonathan Turley, our guest, uh, the board, this is according to their statement, has upheld Facebook's decision January 7th to suspend President Trump from Facebook. And then it goes on to say, by the way, uh, Facebook violated its own rules by imposing a suspension that was indefinite. This penalty is not described in Facebook content policies. It has no clear criteria and gives Facebook total discretion on to what imposed and how to lift it. So what is happening here? Now they're going to go back and set up rules and practices? And does that, what does that mean for President Trump? Well, that's the really humorous aspect of this. They say, you know what? We don't have a standard for permanently banning someone. They don't have a standard for suspending someone. <laughs> if you look at their standard, it is incredibly arbitrary. They they suspend people that they think are engaging in misinformation uh, or dangerous thoughts. That's not a standard. That's just stating your authority. That's true. Uh, Jonathan, so a couple of things. So in other words, it's not like they can't afford even a Jonathan Turley if they want it. They could afford the best lawyers in the world to come up with standards and practices and say, I'm going to give you 10 days to come up with this. And they could come up with a pretty solid document and be able to back up their argument. But they don't seem to have put the effort in there because they know roughly where they're going. They seem to have a political agenda. The question is, will Democrats see that this monster one day will turn on them? And should they? Now, that's the problem with censorship, is it creates an insatiable appetite. We've already seen that in Europe, uh, where they engaged in uh, this type of speech regulation and criminalization. And people develop this insatiable appetite. More and more speech has been criminalized in Europe. Because once you see someone else's views being silenced, well, you want your opponent to be silenced. And so, no, I think the enablers today are only going to double their efforts. They see this as a way of not having to answer their opponents, just silence them. The other thing is there's a sense, you know, Josh Hawley was on with us today. He's writing a book about big tech. He said we've got to break them up. Larry Cullis says, I'm not for breaking them up. Uh, I'm for, you know, regulation, but I'm not for breaking them up. What would breaking them up do? And can you can you picture a scenario where that happens? Well, you can conceivably break them up under an antitrust or monopoly type of theory. That's being explored in various countries, not just the United States. But what's missing here is a consensus on what these social media platforms are. That originally we gave immunity to companies like Facebook because they said, you know, we're just neutral platforms. We're sort of like the telephone company. And even though there was a provision in there that allowed them to to regulate content, everyone viewed this as justified because they were just supplying a platform. So why should they be sued for what people say? Well, then they decided that they wanted to control what people said to each other. And that's what the debate we have to have. And we also have to really focus on creating new platforms. This new Trump platform is not going to do it. What we really need is a Facebook committed to the original vision of the Internet that only removed you know, direct threats of violence or direct personal attacks or the publication of personal data. All of that we all agree on. But otherwise, the assumption should be in favor of free speech as opposed to content, quote, modification. 
Gotcha. I want you to bring it to this the the Chauvin trial and the rule and the revelation now that one of the jurors uh, marched in a Black Lives Matter protest and was on wearing a George Floyd shirt, uh, saying that uh, essentially he became a juror. Obviously, he had an opinion. How he beat the screening process, only you can tell me. What does it mean for Derek Chauvin, the convicted uh, police officer who's uh, aided, at the very least, George Floyd's death? Well, I think it's a pretty serious allegation. There were two questions that asked Mr. Mitchell directly. He was uh, juror 52. I, uh, you know, did you participate in any protests or marches dealing with George Floyd? How are you familiar? The judge asked him directly, are you very familiar with uh, what happened with George Floyd? And his answers um, are were clearly not complete. And that's putting a good spin on it. Uh, the question is what the judge does about it. And also, is this the full extent of any bias? There's discussions about how this juror might have participated in podcasts and yeah. other issues dealing with the with the march. That raises a significant question. But if you recall, we had this issue come up in the trial of Roger Stone. I wrote a number of columns saying that I thought Stone deserved a new trial after the four-person was found to have, in my view, put false answers down during voir dire. It turned out that she was a Democratic activist who participated in protests against the Trump administration and previously discussed the Roger Stone case. To me, it was a slam dunk for a new trial. But Judge uh, Jackson just went to huge lengths to ignore the implications of this. I mean, you have a juror who does not answer your questions, leaves out material information, and the judge just sort of shrugged and said, I'm not going to have a new trial. Yeah, here's what Alan Dershowitz said, cut 39. This was not a juror. This was an advocate. And if it had not been an anonymous jury, probably people would have disclosed the fact that this is a juror who had a point of view before he heard a single bit of evidence. And when you combine that with the threats to the jurors, what do you think this juror came out now and publicized himself? Because he voted to convict. If he had dared to vote for a quit, he'd never have disclosed himself because he knows he'd be attacked. That's not the way the jury system should operate in America. Do you want to challenge any of those, those uh, Alan Dershowitz statements? Well, the only area that I would challenge is I don't know how biased Mr. Mitchell is because um, I don't know the full extent of his comments. Uh, but Alan has a good point. I mean, this undermines the integrity of our system. Um, I was one of those that criticized the judge for not changing the venue of the trial and not sequestering the jury. And I think all of that has come back to undermine yep. this case. Now, the question that will be raised, as it was in Roger Stone, is why the defense attorney did not pick up on this Facebook picture when he was, you know, and his staff were looking at potential jurors. That came up with Roger Stone and Judge Jackson said, you know, part of this is your fault anyway. You should have done your homework, which I find rather bizarre, you know, because, yeah, they should have done their homework, but you also have an allegation that juror did not speak truthfully. Yeah, there's fair and there's uh, unfair. So do you think the whole thing was was made it almost impossible to acquit him? I mean, my hunch, a non-legal professional, when I first watched those first nine minutes, I felt like the case was over. 
uh, because I said, you know, get up, get off him. Oh, my goodness, I can't breathe. You watch him lose consciousness. He never gets off him. Having said that, that's not the legal argument. Do you think that Derek Chauvin got a fair trial? I mean, judging by Maxine Waters' antics, this juror, and and the location of the trial, do you think he got justice? Well, first of all, I think that it's unlikely that the trial will be overturned. But I do have questions about these decisions and how they impacted this trial. I, 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 I really have reservations about this unsequestered jury with all of this stuff happening. I said from the beginning that I thought this was a manslaughter case. I thought the jury could legitimately convict Chauvin on manslaughter. I, I did not view it as a murder case. But as you say, this really isn't for us to say, well, we think he was guilty anyway. The question is, did he get a trial guaranteed him by the Constitution? And I think that the court has to look at these questions and most importantly, try to find out if this is just a one picture on Facebook or whether this juror did not disclose other protests, other comments about the case. Gaia, um, Jonathan, interesting, interesting scenario. The country will respond adversely to this, no question. Uh, but on appeal, it might have been happening anyway if this is retried. Uh, Jonathan Turley, thanks so much. Just to review, the President of the United States stays off uh, Facebook, and they admit they have no standards. And uh, the Derek Chauvin trial is in question because one of the jurors uh, seems to be a pro-Black uh, Lives Matter advocate who is all over the George Floyd case, especially judging by his interview on Good Morning America. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thank you. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. I want to take your calls next, but also tell you the Niall Ferguson is going to be uh, at the bottom of the hour. His brand new book is out called Doom: The Politics of Catastrophe. We'll get him to be a little bit more upbeat than that title. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Fast as three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I wouldn't call them excessive, uh, Savannah, but I, they certainly are conservative. You're right. It looks a bit strict, a bit stringent, but that's the reason why they keep looking at that and tra- trying to you know, reevaluate on, literally in real time. So he's saying the summer camps are too stringent? Hmm. Anthony Fauci on summer camps. Anthony Fauci on the Wuhan lab. We can't get him to comment about the $3.2 billion that he gave to the Wuhan lab to try out all these sample viruses. Well, one got out, it seems. That seems to be the operative term, but no one talks about that. Fauci on camps. Is there anything less attractive than Phil Rizzuto talking about summer camp rules? Who, by the way, says we're in the bottom of the six when it comes to the pandemic. Excuse me. We got a, We have natural immunity because people have had it and lived. Number two, we got 40, almost 50 percent of the country single shot, 35 percent double shot or Johnson & Johnson shot. We are going down in almost every state in the union, including the upper Midwest, who is plagued. We've turned the corner. I know people want to hold on to this forever, but we're not. Unless, of course— the vaccines we told work, uh, don't work. That would stink. So the other big story is President Trump stays off Facebook. 
uh, they keep the ban up. And President Trump, in his brand new site, put this missive out. What Facebook, Twitter, and Google have done is a total disgrace and an embarrassment to our country. Free speech has been taken away from the president of the United States because the radical left lunatics are afraid of the truth. But the truth will come out anyway, bigger and stronger than ever before. The people of this country, of our country, will not stand for it. These corrupt social media companies must pay a political price, must never again be allowed to destroy and disseminate our electoral process. So there he goes. Charlie Kirk is also trending. Uh, The president, he does... Uh, Foundation Young America said this, the U.S. Supreme Court should overturn the Facebook Oversight Board's ruling, which upholds the outlawing of the 45th president of the United States from social media. This is big tech corporate oligarchy without standing, and it's gone too far. Enough is enough. I'm not sure if that'll work, Charlie, but I admire your passion. When we come back, now Ferguson, on where we're heading as a country, and on this in particular, this ruling. He's got a brand new book out. Don't move. You're listening to Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. declare victory prematurely so we're in the late innings but it's not over that's the thing we really got to get people to appreciate we're going in the right direction we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel but now's not a time to declare victory so you think the seventh the eighth inning or late innings what, what inning you're talking about uh, how about the, the bottom of the sixth bottom try that one Unbelievable. Uh, that is uh, Anthony Fauci, who takes his time in getting us out of the pandemic. And uh, looks like Joe Biden is perfectly content doing that. That's the best way for him to get some traction. Uh, Neil Ferguson joins us now, senior fellow at Hoover Institute and author of a brand new book called Doom, the Politics of Catastrophe. Neil, welcome back. Congratulations on the book. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be back with you. I always say the first person, it was right after the election in, in 2016, the first person to say, look out for the revenge of Silicon Valley was you and your book and you personally telling me uh, they are so embarrassed by the way the Repu- the Trump team took advantage in the right way, in a legal way, of Facebook specifically and Twitter, social media to win the election. They'll never let it happen again. And they didn't. That's right, Brian. I I tried my best with my last book, The Square and the Tower, to persuade Americans that we had a major problem with the power of Silicon Valley, the power of the big tech companies over our public sphere. I tried to argue that the the system uh, set up back in the 90s when these companies were tiny or didn't exist at all, which gave them basic impunity, whatever they did, allowed them to censor at will, but also to, to host harmful content, that this would come back to haunt us. It was impossible to get Republicans to focus their minds on reforming Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which, as you know, is the catch-22 of Internet regulation. And you saw what happened. Not only did the big tech companies lean strongly uh, to the Democratic side in the uh, 2020 election, but I think more importantly, we, we reached the 
culmination of their power when they were able to cancel the president of the United States while he was in office, completely delete him. And today, Facebook is uh, upholding that decision, which was, of course, the real coup of January the 6th, 2021. And the precursor, maybe 1B, would be the Hunter Biden story which had legitimate emails on it, weren't, wasn't anybody's opinion. And they said, well, not only are we not going to run with that story, we're going we're gonna to freeze the New York Post account who ran with that story on the laptop because that would have been something, no question, would have hurt the Biden candidacy. Do you think that is also in the same column? Absolutely. And it was it was only one of a, a, a number of stories uh, that were at, at least uh, reduced in their exposure by uh, the big tech companies. Because remember, they don't need to out and out censor. They can just make sure that things don't show up in your search results or don't show up in your news feed. So there was a lot of softer skewing of political content going on. But you and I discussed this. Uh, we discussed it years ago yep. that this would this would this would be the way things would play out uh, in 2020. Of course, we didn't anticipate that there would be a, a pandemic uh, as well. And let's not forget the distinctly harmful role that the big tech companies played there, because they certainly did nothing to limit, censor, or otherwise prevent the spread of all kinds of crazy stories about the virus, uh, about potential therapies, about the vaccines. So, you know, it's not just that they do political censorship. I think it's equally annoying and damaging that they allow a lot of harmful content uh, to go out, uh, that it would be very problematic for a major network or newspaper to carry. But that's the nature of the Section 230 Catch-22. If you say to them, hey, you're doing censorship, they say, no, 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 the First Amendment doesn't apply to us because we're private companies. But if you say to them, hey, you're doing harmful content, you're, you're putting things out there that are endangering people's lives, including death threats, uh, jihadist propaganda, uh, they'll turn around and say, well, we're, just, we're, we're not publishers. We're <laughs> platforms. Uh, and that, that is the ultimate catch-22 of the modern Internet. I mean, a bit, one of the examples I just brought up is LeBron James. He said, you're next, and put a cop's picture up there as a Twitter. I mean, if this guy's not suspended, but instead he deletes it, comes back a few days later, references I should have emphasized on the victim more, never apologizes, you know, that is exactly what you would assume these unwritten rules were, were for. Right. Well, we have a body of law that establishes what uh, is covered by the First Amendment and what is not. And death threats are not covered by the First Amendment. But apparently you can make them on social media and, and, uh, and, and there's no, there are no consequences. So there are a whole set of problems that were obvious, at least to some of us, after uh, the 2016 election that we haven't addressed. In fact, what we've seen is a kind of kabuki where people like Mark Zuckerberg say, oh, we're going to fix Facebook. And they show up and there are these congressional hearings where the, the legislators try their best to see if they can ask us a question that doesn't make them sound completely dumb, and the tech executives fob them off with, with BS pledges to create a Supreme Court for Facebook. I mean, come on. So we've left this problem festering. Now, of course, it's too late because the Democrats are only too happy for this to carry on. They had no incentive to, to fix this because they confidently assume that these powers will never be used against them. They confidently assume that Silicon Valley will always be in their corner. That might turn out to be a wrong assumption one day. But, but right now, it means that what's going to happen is we're going to waste years on antitrust actions that will probably achieve as little as the famous antitrust action against Microsoft achieved. And that's, from my vantage point, is a complete blind alley. It doesn't address the central questions at all. 
It doesn't. Uh, Neil Ferguson, our guest, has got his brand new book out. This is, and we'll, we'll circle back to this, but I want to talk about doom, the politics of catastrophe. Why in this modern age do you believe the pandemic is an example of how we're getting worse in handling catastrophe? Well, it's not like it's the first pandemic ever. There have been uh, many pandemics in history and many a lot worse uh, than this. And uh, we've never cratered our economy and disrupted our society as much as we did uh, in 2020 in response to this one. Let's go back in time, Brian, to 1957-58. There was a comparable global pandemic. They called it the Asian flu then because you could say that without getting cancelled. Uh, the Asian flu, <laughs> guess where it started? China, that's right, spread everywhere pretty fast. Uh, globally killed roughly the same proportion of the population that COVID has killed so far. Wasn't as disastrous in the U.S. Uh, in terms of mortality, but near close because a lot of young people got it. And if you adjust for the fact that a lot of young people were getting sick and, and dying, the impact was com comparable. Let's say it was comparable. But our response was completely different. Did uh, President Eisenhower order lockdowns or declare an emergency? No, there was nothing of that sort. Did, were schools closed? No, they weren't. At the state level, there was almost almost no intervention of that sort. People knew that there was going to be a wave of illness and, uh, and indeed mortality. They dealt with it. Uh, and life went on. You cannot see the 57-58 pandemic in the economic data because it isn't there. Did they spend a ton of money? No, there was a tiny amount of additional funding for vaccine research. And guess what? Uh, you've been told, right, that it's unprecedented how quickly we got a vaccine for COVID. Well, it was fast, sure, but it wasn't as fast as they managed in 57, when in just a few months, a guy named Morris Hillman, a Montana man, was able to come up with a vaccine and get it into people's arms uh, by the fall. And this was a disease that had struck the U.S. in the summer. So I think we clearly handled this far, far less well uh, than our, our previous generation back in the 1950s. And I think that was partly because the federal government has become dysfunctional in so many different ways. It's a bureaucracy that is very good at pr producing 36-page pandemic preparedness plans. They just don't work when there actually is a pandemic. I think our society also had a somewhat different character then. We were more cohesive. We uh, knew how to deal with the, uh, the slings and arrows of fortune because we'd been through World War II and before that, the Depression. So, yeah, I think it's been a, it's been a pretty sad spectacle watching us tie ourselves in knots uh, and crater the economy and, and cause, I think, a whole series of unintended consequences, uh, the full cost of which I don't think have yet become apparent. Absolutely. Uh, Neil, the other thing is you look around the world. That Europe did the same thing. They're still they were in worse shape than us. We were in the worst shape initially, but we've bounced back better. And then you you look at I don't know what exactly is going on in Russia, but now you see what's happening in India, this other democracy, uh, and Japan's having trouble distributing the vaccine, although their numbers stay low. So it's not like the rest of the world had a different model, or the Western world had a different model. Look at Brazil. Right. In fact, the, the democratic world generally has done badly uh, in, in Europe as well as in, in North America. There are countries that got this right. And by the way, the People's Republic of China is not one of those countries because they started this and the way they handled it with the crushing lockdown 
was not the way that we should have copied. But look at Taiwan, or look at South Korea, or even Australia and New Zealand. But if you just look at what the Taiwanese did, it's, it's astonishing. They, they are right next door to the epicenter, just uh, off the Chinese mainland. And yet, by using rapid testing, uh, contact tracing, and isolation of the infected, they managed to avoid lockdowns. And guess how many people died of COVID in Taiwan? 11. That's right. Not even a dozen people. So we know that there was a right way to do this. And we know that it was possible in a democracy because Taiwan's a democracy, as is, as is South Korea. The big puzzle is why nearly all the democracies did poorly one way or another. I mean, they each screwed up in different ways. CDC completely screwed up testing in the U.S. so that for months you couldn't find out if you had yeah. the virus or not. Uh, but then we nailed it with vaccines because Operation Warp Speed was a, a massive success, one that, of course, the Biden administration wants to take credit for. But you and I remember that that was the Trump administration's major victory uh, that, that has put the U.S. on a path of vaccination that has very few competitors. The U.K. and Israel maybe are just ahead. Uh, but, you know, countries from Germany, which has, of course, uh, uh, a reputation for efficiency did badly, is still doing badly when it comes to, to vaccines. So all the Western powers in their different ways screwed this up. Uh, and I think we, we, we've come to the point where we're drawing the wrong conclusion. And the conclusion I keep hearing is, oh, we should be more like China. We've we got to be, be more like the Chinese. We've got to have economic plans like the Chinese. We need a central bank digital currency like the Chinese. We should have done more of a tough lockdown like the Chinese. Brian, these are the wrong conclusions to draw from this disaster because the disaster was made in China. And what has allowed the Chinese Communist Party to do, of course, has been to increase its power, not only in China, but elsewhere. And that's one of the worrying things I, I write about is doom. You know, the doom that worries me is not the relatively distant uh, crisis of climate change that people talk about incessantly. It's the near term doom if China wins Cold War too. Do you think, I mean, uh, you know, I'm just reading uh, Josh Rogan's book and you, you talk to all these other experts and there's a strong sense that this came out of that lab. And you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to think about it unless you, of course, you think a I'm serious. Uh, a bat bit a penguin. Uh, a penguin bit a bat, and then the bat flew into Wuhan, and it spread through the wet market. Uh, I mean, that literally are the two things. Since they won't tell us how it started, do you think there yeah. is there a part of Neil Ferguson that thinks he did this on purpose? I doubt they did it on purpose, Brian, because it, it caused them much greater harm than we recognize. I mean, they, they done their best like the Soviets after Chernobyl, to cover up what happened and also to cover up the costs. But it's been pretty damaging to the Chinese economy. Uh, I think what's more likely is that this was uh, an accidental uh, mishap at one of the, 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 the laboratories uh, in Wuhan that do this kind of research on, uh, on coronaviruses. I, I mean, back last year when this was first being debated, uh, you weren't really allowed to say that. Uh, and it was orthodox to accept the Chinese story that this had originated in one of their so-called wet markets with bats and pangolins and all the rest of it. But, you know, it's interesting, more and more people uh, thinking about the evidence that we have are coming to the conclusion, no, it's not 
an engineered uh, virus. This is a natural virus, but it probably came from one of these labs because somebody screwed up. And I, I'm, I'm increasingly of the, of the view that that's what happened because why else would they be so frantically covering it up? Why won't they tell the WHO right. or anybody else what happened? So there's something to hide here, and that seems like the most plausible thing. The Chinese don't want to admit that they screwed up uh, because they don't like to admit that, that things go wrong like that in China. But they do a lot. That was, by the way, why I never believed that the Chinese vaccines would be much good, because their track record of vaccine safety and efficacy is terrible. Uh, but again, that's the kind of thing they don't want the world to know about China. Right. Uh, we don't know. I'm not sure how effective the Russians is, but the Chinese have one. They gave it to Brazil, and Brazil's in a the second only to uh, India in terms of a catastrophic uh, spread. Or look at Chile, Brian. Chile is vaccinated like crazy. They, they've, they've caught up with and overtaken most countries in terms of vaccine proportions, but, but they've been using Chinese vaccines. The efficacy is really low and the results are really disappointing. So remember last year, Xi Jinping was going to save the world with Chinese vaccines. I said at the time, I don't believe it. And sure enough, uh, we won the vaccine race uh, handily, both in terms of technology, because the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are superior technology, but also because actually it turned out that we were quite good at rolling out vaccines, as, as indeed we, we were back in the 1950s. Uh, luckily, there are just a few things that the federal government can can get right, and this was one of them. Hopefully people will read this and try to correct the next one, because it's hard to know exactly what the next catastrophe will be. We just know it's, it's going to happen. Neil Ferguson, right. who used his time in pandemic to write a great new book. It's called Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. His other book is also uh, prescient and is uh, very insightful, The Square and the Tower, Networks, Hierarchies, and the Struggle for Global Power. Neil, thank you. Always great. Thanks, Brian. You got it. one 408 7669 Back to wrap this up and take your calls. Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Our goal by July 4th is to have 70% of adult Americans at least one shot and 160 million Americans fully vaccinated. That means giving close to 100 million shots, some first shots, other second shots, over the next 60 days. And let's try to hit that 70% mark. All right. Uh, that is a goal. OK, maybe you want to give people an incentive by not wearing a mask when you're walking alone. Uh, maybe you want to actually tell people that natural immunity counts towards herd immunity. Seventy percent of shots is also an aspiration. But try to get a strategy to win them over. A lot of people say it's not convenient. A lot of people say they don't trust it. Some say they'll hold out. They're not worried about getting it. So think about it. Also, I don't think the ticket to freedom is uh, they're doing testing now on infants to five years old. There's almost no chance they're going to get it and spread it. Why are we bothering? I'm even iffy about teenagers. Let's see a study that shows that. And teenagers, if they get it, have almost no fatality rate. If, uh, let's go to um, uh, let's go to Ken real quick on FM News Talk 97.1. Hey, Ken. Hey, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I just want to go back to what you were saying about Fauci. 
I couldn't agree more. I, I am so I've been done with that guy for months. And I mean, I know a couple people that hang on his every word and it's, it's sickening because this guy's been all over the board and I'd like to know exactly what he does other than get <laughs> in, fr in front of a microphone. I mean, he, he's never met a microphone or a camera that he doesn't like. Can you believe this? Mine actually, I mean, yeah, buddy. Actually, not to interrupt you. I'm sorry. He, buddy of mine actually texted me. He got a copy of his itinerary. I guess they posted it somewhere. It was from seven in the morning to like seven at night. Interview, interview, interview. Yeah. I, yeah, get a bar graph or a pie chart. Pick up a beaker and a lab coat. Then I maybe believe that you have something to do with this instead of winging some lifestyle questions. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.